0: Awaken podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Rio. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode.
1: All right. Brittany Hartley, how are you?
2: I'm so good. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm Britt Hartley with my co-host Bill Real, and we're going to move, we're going to skip our lovely banter that we usually do at the beginning mm-hmm. and move right into introducing our guest today because we really want to utilize all the time that we have with him. So I have with us today Thomas J. Ord, and he's a good friend of mine and uh, one of my spiritual mentors. He lives here in Boise, and I love our conversations and I love the work that he's doing, and so I just wanted to pick his brain here on this podcast and introduce him to you all. So, Tom, why don't you just kind of tell us, you know, your usual thing about what you're up to?
3: Yeah. Well, thanks for the opportunity for the chat and, and for the kind words, Brittany. Uh, what's the usual for me? Um, I try to help people think about big questions and often the answers that I'm attracted to involve uh, beginning with the idea that there actually is a God who is loving but um, I often find that by the time the conversation ends, the God of love that I'm proposing sounds a little different than the one many people have been exposed to.
2: And then tell us a little bit, I would love to start with, um, because I think you have some similarities to the people in this audience. So kind of go back a little bit to being raised in kind of more of a fundamentalist kind of God. And then kind of, I would love to hear, you know, your, your stint in atheism and then kind of what intuitions brought you to where you are now. Mm.
3: Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. I was uh, raised in a fairly evangelical kind of community. Uh, Church of the Nazarene is the denomination and I took Religion, faith, God, Jesus, whatever. I took all that stuff really seriously and uh, eventually kind of became a little evangelist of sorts, not just of sorts. I really was an evangelist. Um, But then I started reading some really smart people who were not only not a part of my tradition, but some of them were atheists, agnostics, And um, this was near the end of my college career. And for the sake of intellectual honesty, I had to admit that I didn't have really good reasons to believe there was a God. And so for a period was, I don't know if I was an atheist or agnostic, but I just didn't think there was a God, at least the God that I had been raised with. And I started piecing things back together or coming back to a belief in God based on uh, a deep search for meaning and my intuitions that in some sense, love was at the heart of who I ought to be and maybe even the heart of reality. And um, that meant actually returning to have a fairly kind of traditional role as a youth pastor, associate pastor in various churches becoming an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm still that. <laughs> um, and But it meant also, it meant that I was willing to forego or set aside some of the common views of God that people have. For instance, um, I don't think God is in control or even could be in control. I don't think God knows the future So just to give you a little taster of some of those ideas.
2: Yeah. And then if you don't mind, um, I don't know how much of this you talk about openly, but, but, uh, a while ago you made a pretty big stir in Boise because the ideas of this kind of God that you were postulating that maybe isn't in control of everything, maybe doesn't see the future and, uh, you know, kind of allow trauma to happen in the world. It started to kind of come up against this traditional God to the point where your career at NNU, um, at, you know, a university was really was really threatened. So can you talk about kind of the tension during that time of, of those two gods really kind of uh, coming head to head and, and what that's like? Because I think it's a tension that we can all feel in the broader world too, but you really had it in your life pretty... Profoundly.
3: Yeah. You know, I think that the the views of God I currently have are fit comfortably in the general theological tradition that I'm a part of, but they are uncommon. They are, uh, they put more conservative people on edge. And so some of those people were worried that I was a professor teaching uh, not only students at the university, but potential leaders and pastors. And so some of the more influential ones uh, joined forces with the president, and I was laid off for technical reasons related to to student uh, growth when everyone knows that the real reason was, was the, the theological things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Corrupting the yeah.
2: youth, that's almost... It's, you know, it's like corrupting the youth for Socrates. It's almost like, a badge, right. it's like a badge of honor.
3: <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I guess the
2: really the next question to move into is: let's dive into what you're talking about here. So, what is open and relational theology?
3: Open and relational theology is a kind of umbrella uh, set of claims that includes under it a whole bunch of different views, people, movements, etc. But the idea that unites them or the two ideas that unite them are that God is a relational God. God is engaged in our lives, affected by what we do, not just giving to us, but actually receiving from us. And the idea that God moves through time with us into an open future, rather than being outside of time and seeing all things in one glance God is actually learning like we learn because new things uh, occur moment by moment. And that has the advantage of, make, of fitting more nicely with our notions about free will. Uh, it fits better the notion that God is affected, the relational part. Um, and so those are the two big ideas. A, a lot of people under that umbrella also uh, want to rethink God's power such that God is not omnipotent. They want to rethink how we think about God creating, uh, the primacy of love, and a bunch of other sort of other uh, important issues. But the open relational uh, is what unites these di- this diversity.
2: All right, I'm going to ask one or two more questions, and then and then uh, Bill and I, Bill I, Bill, I know has some questions, and uh, you and I, I push on you all the time, Tom, <laughs> because it's just so helpful to push against someone who will hold space and really consider my question and you've thought about it. And Mm. um, even if we end up at the end of the conversation, disagreeing, it's just been so helpful to Mm. have you to kind of wrestle these, these things. Um, But I want to do a couple more questions before we move into some of that space. So it's been interesting watching you and your career and your, your books. How many books now, Tom? I've lost
3: count. <laughs> you know, so have I.
2: <laughs> How many books?
3: I, You know, I, I, somebody asked me this recently. I think it's about 30. It's somewhere <laughs> in that neighborhood.
2: I've been what yeah, I've been I've been following along and I've been watching people's response to this idea of a different kind of God that you know isn't the Old Testament God and uh, just is a little bit more close to our intuitions about love and relationality. Um, and the most interesting for me, and I want to hear your intuitions about this, but the most interesting kind of subgroup for me um, that I've seen kind of react to open and relational theology are those who have experienced trauma and there's this there's this population that has intuitions about god or experiences spiritual experiences that they call god however that is but something happened in their life that shouldn't have happened or it wasn't good or um, in you know something happened in the church with a bishop, or you know something happened, and it just kind of rattles this notion of God. And then they come across you, and there's something that happens with this population that's just really fascinating. So, can you talk to me about kind of what you're seeing as you're putting out open and relational theology with this kind of trauma group?
3: Yeah, that's a great observation. Um, I get letters weekly from people who have read a book that I wrote called God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Other Evils. And what makes this, view, this book particularly uh, helpful is that I just straight up say God simply can't single-handedly stop or prevent the kind of crap that we go through in the world. A lot of other people have wanted to appeal to free will, but then they'll say, well, God allows evil because God cares about your free will, or God permits your sexual abuse because God's got a better plan, or even worse, God's punishing you. And um, I simply go to what I think is the key issue, and that is a truly loving God who could prevent evil but allows it is not really a loving God. And it makes more sense, I think, to believe that God loves everyone all the time, doesn't want evil, and simply can't single-handedly prevent evil. And that's the kind of idea that, provokes the kind of letters almost all of them positive saying thank you <laughs> thank you now i no longer have to think god had abandoned me or was punishing me or was trying to teach me a lesson when you know my mother died in a wreck or whatever hmm. and then oh n- n- go ahead
1: oh d- sure is going I to throw something out so yeah um First off, thanks for coming on. And and I've spent, you know, several hours in the last week kind of listening to podcasts where you were interviewed. And I, I really deeply appreciate the perspective you come from because in in Mormonism, which we came from, right, in these high-demand fundamentalist religions that are out there, and there's a there's a bunch of them, there's this, and it happens in Christianity in general too, to some degree, but there are always voices in the room who claim to know exactly what God Things and to line out the path. And, and it seems as though anytime a voice gets into the specifics, they seem to be off base, hmm. right? So the safe, the safe way seems to be to back off and really approach God from just the edges. Hmm. And anytime you really get into the center of it, you probably have overstepped your bounds and you've chosen to define God in ways that don't really work. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are, because it's really hard to, I, I love your view. It's mm-hmm. really hard to walk back to that and let go of all the voices that are in anybody's, um, uh, you, you know, their outer authorities from their tribe to let mm-hmm. go of those completely and to realize that you really almost can't name it. You almost can't define it and and it's going to be really hard i think to get the human population to sit in that seeing as most folks tend to stay at low lower stages of development see the world in dualistic binary ways and i'm just curious what your thoughts are in moving people from dogmatism and rigidity to a much softer way and how difficult maybe that transition is for folks
3: yeah i kind of see Things as often following a three step pro- process. Um, the first step is kind of the picture of God you've been given by your tribe, your parents, maybe just the particular subculture you're in. And in those kinds of traditions or in those kinds of scenarios, people tend to say, okay, this is God. This is what God is like. This God does X, Y, Z, and oftentimes is a whole lot more than just X, Y, Z. But you're at least given the impression that we're really confident this is the correct picture of God. But almost always that ends up having some holes and people have questions. And people who are brave enough or people who go through tragedies and feel compelled to leave that kind of uh, approach will often move into... I'll call it a mystery realm. And that is, uh, they'll say, look, we don't know what God is like. Who can be sure about that? Uh, But there's something, there's some transcendence. There's, there's some, I have some intuitions. There's more than what this reality is. But in the mystery kind of stage, people are really reticent to put any kind of descriptors on the divine. And most progressive circles I'm in, People are like that. I was speaking in Vancouver uh, this summer, and I did a big lecture at a downtown progressive church. And all they wanted to talk about was whether or not the word "God" had any made any sense, because um, I had used that word fairly regularly, and they they all had negative baggage pa- attached to it, and they rightfully uh, wanted to find something else, you know, to use. The third step, I think. Acknowledges that we just can't know for sure if there is a God and what kind of God might exist, uh, what kind of God God is if God exists. So, in the third step, you're humble. You don't claim to have it all figured out. I like to say you're not even certain there is a God, and if there is, you're not certain what that God is like. But (laughs) you're willing to put forward a proposal that has some details to it on the table. You could be wrong about it, but that proposal uh, you put on the table because you think it fits the way life works, or it matches some experiences you've had, or it fits with general revelation of cross traditions or science or whatever, You, you kind of put this out there and you say, okay, I'm not sure this is who God is, what God is like. I'm not even sure there is a God, but if there's a God, I think this view or model of God makes the most sense for these kinds of reasons. And that's the kind of endeavor I'm proposing when I say things like, God can't prevent evil single-handedly. I don't know that for sure. (laughs) But if there is a God, I think this kind of model makes better sense than any alternative I know of.
1: So I want to follow that up um, with the idea that, you know, human beings have been on the planet, I don't know, 200,000 years, whatever it is. And along that way, there have been a thousand, if not more myth stories about what that awe and wonder is about something bigger than us being. And I'm just curious if in your own path, if you would say Christianity best encapsulates that, or in your mind, you go, look, I don't, I don't know if it's Christianity. I don't know if it's Buddhism. I don't know if it's like, how do you approach other religions? And the 10,000 myth stories that you don't even know about because we weren't on the planet at the time that those came into being and extinguished, right? And and so do you see Christianity as the best way to frame that? And kind of what is your reason or thoughts behind um, that question?
3: I myself am attracted to being a follower of Jesus and consider myself a Christian. I find it most attractive overall. However, open relational thought isn't limited to Christians. In fact, next month, um, I'm hosting a scholarly conference in which Muslim and Christian open and relational scholars are going to be talking about the shared vision of God they have. And then there's obviously some differences between Islam and Christianity but there are Baha'i open and relational people, Uh, there are Jewish, there are you know people who don't identify with any religious tradition but who like this open and relational vision of God and and self-identify as such. So um, I also think God is present and active in all places and all times trying to communicate with all people and therefore you know, there's a variety of religious traditions that have something valuable to offer. But just because God is present and active and all traditions have something to offer, it doesn't necessarily mean all traditions are exactly the same in value or have the same amount of truth or have a, the same or equally adequate picture of God. And mm-hmm. um, so that's where that third move that I was talking about, where I'm willing to say this myth to use your language or this model this makes better sense I think of all the data I'm aware of and my deep intuitions
2: okay I'm gonna do one pushback here. this is actually a conversation we've had before yeah. um but I want to follow up here because I, I wanna I want everyone to see this this argument too. So I've asked you before we've had this conversation before and I I'm still curious as to why Christianity um, still speaks to you in that way. Because for me, my intuition is that if I believed in an open and relational God, if I believed that God was relationality and love, then the biggest kind of barrier to that is just kind of our neurotic brains and our illusions of separateness, right? And so it seems like to me, the best religion or at least spiritual practice to kind of break that illusion, break the kind of neuroticism, break that illusion of separateness so that we can really just dip into, you seem to be a human just like me and I am you and you are me and I love you to get to that space. I feel like Buddhism does that the best. I feel like Buddhism is the one that kind of dispels that separation to allow love to fro- flow you know freely between conscious creatures and so that makes the most sense to me you know if i really you know believed in an open and relational god so what is it about christianity that still uh calls to you kind of more than other traditions
3: yeah well there are a variety of buddhisms but let's talk pure land buddhism for instance or i'll just say the non-theistic buddhisms um uh, I'm really attracted to uh, arguments for a particular kind of God. And so religious traditions that don't have a God uh, are less attractive to me. Um, I think God plays an important role in creating the universe, in drawing uh, us toward light and love, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um but that's kind of more theism, more generally. <laughs> what about Christianity, you're asking me, uh, am I attracted to? Um, Christians have done some crappy things. And the Christian scriptures sometimes portray God in unloving ways. So I definitely won't, don't want to come across as saying the Christian tradition got everything right. But Christianity has this claim that we not only ought to love strangers, which Judaism has, but we ought to love enemies. Um, and that's not a widely embraced notion across traditions. I'm not saying no one else has it, but that is like a pretty amazing thing. That's a part of the Christian tradition I like a lot. Um, Christianity, for all its flaws, has some claims in its sacred texts that pushed the primacy of love and the identification of God and love better than uh, most other traditions I'm aware of. So again, I'm not saying, again, Christianity's got it all figured out, whatever, whatever. But that that matters to me. Mm -hmm. And I suspect there's also, just maybe throw one other thing. I suspect there's also the fact that while for a while I walked away from the Christian tradition, my growing up in it and my friendships of people in that tradition that probably also plays a role it's kind of like okay i know it's not wise for me to try to do this without any community so if i'm gonna have a community might as well try to find a good one within this tradition that i kind of Mm. already know
2: yeah that piece that last piece I've said, I've said to you before, I have some holy envy of, because yeah. there is – not that we don't talk about Mormonism a lot on this podcast, but you and I have talked about how there is – Pieces of early Mormonism, especially that was very open and relational that God is in relationship with humanity and in process with us and, um, that the future is open. It's, it's much, it's a much more kind of human God and not, not an other kind of God, Mm -hmm. um, and so there was a lot of room to play there, and it's not that way anymore. Those those strands of Mormonism are are almost dead now, for all intents and purposes, which is really sad to me. But if there was, you know, places that were kind of bringing that God alive, or there was a place to play there under the umbrella of Mormonism, you know, I I really envy that because it's something that. Um, you know, through all, you know, through all kinds of Mormon history, we kind of got away from, um, and ended up, it's interesting that that some strands of Christianity became more like early Mormonism with this open and relational process, God, but Mormonism ended up going more like fundamental Christianity in the end. (laughs) And so there was just kind of this kind of switcheroo that happened. Um, So you talked about sacred texts. So how do you then read the Bible and how do you kind of encourage others to read the Bible?
3: Yeah, I think the Christian Bible points to a God of perfect love in general. There's tons of passages that point against it. But if I were to take the big picture, I also think this Jesus guy gives a very strong revelation or claim that this God is loving. So I'm trying to follow him in the way I live my life, at least the general kinds of contours of what it means to live a life of love. But um, I like to very uh, openly acknowledge to people that there are some portions of Scripture that suck, that just get God wrong, that I think are bad, just to be blunt. I make that claim based upon other passages of Scripture. <laughs> so it's, you know, I'm not coming to the, the, the Bible with my like um, with presuppositions that haven't already been influenced by the Bible what I'm doing is I'm emphasizing or claiming that some ideas are uh, truer give are more accurate etc and so my advice to people when they read scriptures is to to look for those big themes and they may in fact agree with me that love is the big theme and we can use that to criticize those passages that seem to undermine love
2: and are you a fan of like There's, I see like two responses. There's some people who say like, let's take out the verses of like God sending bears to kill children. Let's like, they're just too damaging. Let's just take them out. And then there's also the group that kind of says, you know what, let's leave those in there because we learn a lot about what humans do and our shadow side. And, and, you know, there's lessons to learn even in those passages. Are you more of a fan of just like, let's just, Let's just not read these in church anymore. Let's not have children read that story, or do you kind of want it all in there, but really just teach people how to be able to separate those and learn from both?
3: Yeah, I don't think i'm I don't think I am in the opinion to cut out passages, but i do I do think it's foolish to have children read some passages, and there are some passages that I probably wouldn't read in church. Um, so it is, it's, it's a difficult issue because if I'm so intent on not, you know, teaching those passages, then in effect, I'm cutting them out. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, on the other hand, I, there's something to be gained. And sometimes I've noticed over the years that there's a passage I think is really crap, But then I'll get a different angle on it, a different interpretation, and I'll say, oh, well, maybe there's actually something there that I missed earlier. So in lieu of the – in case the possibility might come along that I could reinterpret some passages I currently think are crap, I guess I'm willing to keep them in the text.
2: So I think what I'd love to do now is just to um – just do some kind of fast fire questions that are going to be more pushback kind of questions. And I don't do this because this is a battle that I'm going to win and I'm going to flex my whatever. (laughs) This is because it's so helpful. I'm, I'm so saddened by like so much of the debates online between, you know, atheists and believers. It's this, it's this weird battle where, um, you know, the believer may have like this old, they're trying to defend some kind of old Testament thing. And it's just so easy for the atheist to just like blow them up. And the very, very interesting thing about you is that, you know, if I were to bring up evolution, like you've thought about this, like you've read about this, you've thought about these issues deeply, and it's just a better conversation than a lot of the ones that are online. And I just want people to get a sense of that. And so as I'm pushing back, just everyone know, this is just out of a deep love for Tom. Um. Uh, <laughs> and he can handle it and he's thought right. about all these things and it's going to be okay. <laughs> and Sounds so good, Bill right? and I are just going to take turns just kind of, you know, with our our skeptical backgrounds, part of coming out of, like you said, the, the stage two of kind of coming out of a certain view of God is you have a certain... um allergy to truth claims Mm -hmm. and then like you say as you move into stage three you're 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 just trying to open your mind to what is and people's ideas and how do we make sense of this and so i just i want to kind of move into that space where we're just we're just trying these ideas and um hopefully getting out of this place that you usually see with debates online, which is just everybody's (laughs) triggered about everything and it just doesn't go anywhere. So Bill and I are just going to take turns with just some, some pushback questions. So one of my big questions for you, Tom, and I think one of the reasons that really, as I was studying with you, I couldn't fully go to where you are, even though there was just a big part of my heart that wanted to, is that what does it say about God that, there's such a limit to life in the universe and not only is there, you know, we've o- we only know of life on one planet. If, if this was good, if this was God, if this was God, what, what God wanted to bring us to this place where we could be in relationship with one another and have lovely conversations like these, if this mm-hmm. was the point of it and there's, it's not happening as we know of anywhere else in the universe. And then the past, 200,000 years for humanity. I mean, people are dying at age 30 from their teeth. It's suffering. They have no they don't know about germs. It's it's superstitious. It's these just afraid tribes <laughs> that are just clinging onto existence and then 99% of all species have gone extinct. And so it just seems to me like if this was God's project, Um, it's been a tough ride (laughs) to get here (laughs) Uh, and it begs the question of, of, is this, is this God idea the best idea that we have considering we have such a violent suffered history and such a limit to life and most life on the, on the planet is already extinct anyway. It seems like if it, if there is a God, he's fighting a losing battle thoughts.
3: Yeah, I'm going to try to make things to sync so we can do this fairly rapidly. It sounds like what you're proposing is a variation on the problem of evil, but you're adding in the question of God is creating this thing, and why would God do that? Um, my answer to the problem of evil goes back to the God can't thing, and it adds that God didn't even have the capacity to create something from scratch or from absolute nothing so i think god has ever been creating uh, or ever creating i should say but let me add since you already know what i think about the problem of evil that there's another problem called the problem of good and that's the problem that an atheist oftentimes wrestles with why is there so much good in the world yes there's lots of suffering evil been going on for a long time. I, you know, totally agree with that. I think it's pointless pain. I don't think God planned it, wanted it, etc. But there's also been a whole lot of cooperation, beauty, goodness, um, and it's hard for me. Well, I'll put it even stronger. It's impossible for me to account for all of that without reference to a God, or to put milder, the God hypothesis helps to answer the problem of good in a way that I don't think, I don't know of any atheist that can answer it quite so well.
2: Bill, go ahead.
1: Okay. So we said rapid fire, but it's going to take me a minute to frame this. It's just <laughs> yeah, like you guys,
3: questions to... are longer than my answers. Here. They are. They are. <laughs>
1: um, so if I, if I go back 13 point something billion years ago and we, science says there was this bang. And again, who knows what the hell happened there, but something happened. And and from that moment, the creative energy of the universe expanded out, right? And planets formed and stars and moons and all kinds of things and life, at least here, right? And probably, almost assuredly, somewhere else. And that understanding, again, I think you're familiar with that. I don't think I'm throwing something new at you. That understanding, that creative energy, which we wouldn't have to have as a consciousness, it wouldn't need to be a, a, a man in the sky directing affairs, it could just be natural, a natural energy flowing and expanding. It, it, it That energy could be considered omnipotent. Everything that's ever been done has been done by it. It could be considered all-knowing because as Eckhart Tolle said, we're the universe expressing ourselves as humans for a little while and consolidated, we could simply say we are stardust. It, so it could be all-knowing because everything that is known is known by it because we are it. It could be considered uh, all present omnipresent because everything everywhere is part of it. So it's everywhere. So when we boil God down to those three ideas, the creative energy of the universe fits that. And knowing what we do know about the history of this planet in the history of the universe. Um, in what way does your framing for God and maybe even religion. How is it any different than me who I I would claim to be like an atheist mystic where I, I sense that creative energy. I'm in awe and wonder of the universe. I think we're all connected, but I don't need a conscious being out there to be doing anything. How is there any stronger indication that what the way you frame it, let me ask you this, how is your framing different than what I just said? And, um, What would cause me to see a weakness in my position if you are saying something different that my position couldn't be much more naturally explained and more evident as we look across the universe and try to take in why we have what we have in front of us?
3: Yeah. Well, one answer I could give you is that if you want to call uh, this force, this power, this, what, what was the word you used again? Creative energy. Creative energy. Yeah. If you want to ascribe to creative energy, the attributes I would like to describe to God, then I'll just take your term and (laughs) I'll use that instead of God. (laughs) like the the terminology doesn't matter to me too much. But one of the elements that for me is really super important, and maybe you you can account for this in creative energy, but I I have a hard time doing it. Um, And that's the issue of love. I think love is not only generous helpfulness to others, but also receptive relationship. So a kind of giving and receiving. And if your creative energy can both give good things and interact in an intentional way with others, then it sounds like what you're calling creative energy, I'm calling God. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's too easy of an answer. (laughs) <laughs> from what you're suggesting, but um, I would only add that that I think this creative energy that I like to call God has been everlastingly around and um, creating worlds and entities everlastingly. So um, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's not a great answer, but that's how I that's my first response to your good question.
1: Yeah, and I'm trying to think of how to ask it, maybe a different facet of it, and try to kind of poke at the edges of this a little more. But, okay. um, you, you know, you, um, the, the difference seems, the fundamental difference seems to me is that to say God, and again, what God means, a thousand people would say something different. But sure. it seems to intimate something more than the natural process by which the universe created itself, mm. right? and the word god seems to be triggering for folks like me because it pushes me to leave that view that it's just a natural process that the universe created itself. Mm. And and folks like you I feel like you're right there with me like you're just a razor's edge away yeah. from where I am at. <laughs> and yet I can't quite put my finger on what it is exactly that's different. Because I think there's I think if you and I are in a room and we're having a conversation long enough you and I would both just agree like, Hey, Bill, your framing of this creative energy by which the universe created itself fits all the parameters for the most part that I need to hold the view I do. Yeah. And I'm just trying to sense into what is it that makes your view different than mine, that I should not be an atheist who also believes the universe created itself and that we ought to love and care for each other and be kind and, reduce trauma in the world and, and help to help others be kind. Right. Like, yeah. What,
3: I got no, differ? yeah, I got no problem with atheists wanting to be kind and make the world a better place. <laughs> so uh, more power to you. I wish more Christians were like that. Um, Maybe for me, one of the differences is between probably some language you've heard of and maybe your listeners and uh, have heard of it. The difference between pantheism and panentheism. Pantheism is the idea that everything is divine. There's nothing more than what is the na- natural order. And if you want to call the natural order God, then that's pantheism. If you don't want to, then you know you just have naturalism without any theism. But panentheism wants to have a close connection between the natural order and the divine. But the divine is something more than the natural order. It transcends it in some way. The problem with pantheism for me is that if it's true, I have to call Donald Trump God. And I just can't do that because of moral reasons. The problem with naturalism without any God is that I wonder, what is the transcendent moral good that you as an atheist, and I as a theist, am striving for that is more than just the process of evolution, the run of the mill of things, whatever. So I guess it comes down to, is there any transcendence in your view of uh, reality? Um, A theist like me can say there is transcendence, but I don't have to go to a kind of supernaturalism that so distinguishes God from creation that God's sort of out there and entirely different in all ways.
2: And I think we talked about this earlier, Tom, is that we send articles back and forth to each other. and, and, um, And you said the other day, you know, I, I don't mind people who, like, like Bill, like, you're close. Like, you guys are right there, you know, if you were to <laughs> debate this out. It's, it's what we have to be, what we both want to push back on. In fact, in what this podcast tries to do is, like, over here is nihilism and over here is, like, fundamentalism. Like, I know for sure what God wants in this situation. And yeah. both of those, like, we got to stay away from. So this middle yeah. space of, like, we're not really sure, but here's an idea and here's how it fits with evolution and here's how it fits my understanding of love anything in that space. Like I'm okay with, like I'm okay (laughs) with anything in that space. And I think really you are too. So here's a question. Here's a question for me. There's going to be a lot of people on this podcast who say love is my highest good. And it's not really grounded in a God. Maybe they don't feel like they have Mm. to intellectually, or maybe they feel like they're able to get there just, um, from evolutionary kind of, kind of arguments. Um, Mm. But if this is kind of a Pascal's wager question, but mm-hmm. I'm going to do the reverse on it. So That'd Pascal's Pascal's wager is is this idea from seventeenth seventeenth century kind of mathematician that's that said that humans are kind of in a wager about whether God exists or not, and he argued that a rational person should live as as if God exists because. Uh, if God does not exist, then, you know, you, you may lose a few pleasures, but if God does exist, you know, there's a lot more to gain by that idea. And so he just kind of put his chips on, you know, I think God exists, but I, I'm kind of do the opposite nowadays in the sense that I figure that whatever, even if God was real and a thing, we're, we're likely to be, we're likely to be so wrong about it. Right. Because we're just historically very bad at this question of ultimate reality. And so my thing with Pascal's wager is because we're likely to be wrong and because we're likely to be so biased just as we are as humans, that is there a better way to place love as the highest good without God, given our history of trying to answer the God question, because it's just so bad. Um, Is there an intellectual humility of just letting the question go and placing love as the highest good without having to ground it in a God because we're inevitably going to get that part wrong?
3: Yeah. Well, we're inevitably going to get the good part wrong too. So it's not like we're going to be right about one thing. Mm. um, We're always going to have see through a glass darkly to use that biblical phrase. So, even what the good is, is something we're trying to grasp at and discern, and we're not sure. So, but that's still, that's sort of an epistemological aside. Um,
2: Because a lot of people claim that just love is my highest value and it kind of acts as God. So, if you do that, are you getting all the benefits of your worldview without having to do any theology?
3: I think you're getting a lot of the benefits, maybe not all of yeah. the benefits. So
2: what, so what would be missing for that person yeah. that you're saying, hey, if you ground this intuition, you get a little bit more? What would that yeah. kind of
3: be? Well, what if you thought there was a loving spirit who not only called you to live a life of love, but also empowered, inclined, lured, persuaded, wooed um, you toward that? What if you thought there was a companion in the process of, of this call to love? Mm-hmm. Um, would that be a more attractive a vision of reality? I think it would so long as that spirit uh, wasn't a controlling spirit, wasn't going to send people to hell if they didn't love. Um, you know so I'm going to set aside some of those uh, bad views of God or that spirit. And say, what kind wouldn't a vision of reality that includes this nudge, this deep nudge toward love, better than a reality in which there n- was no such thing as a nudge, but that there's somehow just an idea of we ought to do the good thing?
2: Yeah. So, my pushback to that, and then I'll go over to Bill, is. A lot of times on this podcast, what we do is we take something that people are doing spiritually. And Bill and I just kind of get of like, what is the root of what's going on here? Like, how do we strip mm. away maybe some of the superstitions or or other things that are attached to the spiritual tool? Because something that we're trying to do is really separate the baby from the bathwater, right? Mm. Which is something that I think all of us are trying to do in this kind of spiritual space. And so when someone says... Um, yeah, so so if you take something like tarot cards, you know, we did an episode on occult practices. And the great thing about some of these occult practices is it kind of tunes your brain to notice a pattern. No, mm-hmm. you know, if you pull this card, you're 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 tuning your brain to notice this pattern in your day. And Bill and I don't believe that the planets moved in such a way that you picked that card that day. Like that's a little bit too woo-woo for both of us, right? Okay but we do see the tool of kind of priming your brain to look for certain patterns that will incur growth because you're noticing things. And so is it possible to pull? So for open and relational theology, if we were to imagine that it was a a spiritual tool, Is there a way to prime your brain for that? Always looking for opportunities of love, always looking for that nudge towards love, always, you know, seeking out that pattern and really continually getting your brain to notice these patterns, which then ends up, you know, showing up showing up in your life as these loving opportunities that you notice more and, and your relationships deepen and all those good things. Can you can you do that? Um, without the belief, can you strip that from the belief? Can you get the pattern and get the goods from that pattern without the belief? Or do you think you have to believe it in order to get that tool?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I want to say this really strongly. You don't have to believe that there's a God to live a life of love. So you don't have to, you can follow the tools or whatever mechanisms you have that prompt you to do the right thing, help your neighbor, love your enemy, et cetera, et cetera. I'm making the argument that it might be more attractive to think it's more than just you conditioning your brain. It might be a more attractive vision of reality, that there's a companion who's helping you, who's nudging you toward that. So um, atheists can love, but I'm more attracted to a view that says love and a lover exist. And that lover is a capital L lover. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good answer to your good question, but
2: no, I, I understand. Go ahead, Bill.
1: I love, I love this by the way. I love this. Oh, thanks. Cause I think, I think if people really understand you and I think I do, and people really understand us. And I, th- I think at least the folks who follow this regularly do, I think they're gonna sense, as I said before, that we're just really so close to each other yes. <laughs> in the space. And we're really we're really fighting over kind of a hair's, you know, thickness. Yeah. Yep. And um, so I, the other side of the coin of what Britt just said is that anytime we put our trust into religion, and it's gonna be really hard to frame God without a system to put that God on display somehow, right? Mm. So if we all just go into our private prayer closets and work out what God is without trusting uh, a a canonical text explicitly, without trusting certain voices explicitly, it's going to be really difficult to have any cohesion. Mm. So in order to have cohesion, there has to be a community and the community has to have boundaries. Otherwise, it's not a community at all. And anytime we try to set up a community that claims to know anything about God. It seems to be set up to cause trauma and abuse to people. Mm. And so I'm curious if like the other side of what Brit just said is that maybe religion is much as I think if we could create a religion that espouses your framing, I think we'd be fine. I just don't think you can get a group of people together and everybody play that nice and allow that much space for everyone to come to their own internal understanding of what this thing is and to have some general guidance on being kind to each other without creating boundaries that separate gender or race or ethnicity Mm. or sexual identity. Mm. And so my, my question is if we try to fight to create a religion that is going to be this big tent that loves and welcomes everyone is that a lost cause and hence maybe it's better to just throw the baby out with the bathwater and to start working towards the idea that maybe as I look across the universe, there isn't any way to know that that voice is God. And these are the boundaries that we all ought to maintain explicitly because that only sets up people to out of power and, and greed or some unhealthy attribute to create a system that in turn still creates tribal lines and boundaries and again does harm all over again. Well,
3: I think religion and communities are inevitable. There's no such thing as living a life out of the grasp of that. Now by religion, I have a very big view of religion. So I think governments can be religions, consumerism can be a religion, Um I've got a big view of religion, not just a sacred text and, you know, whatever, some rituals. Uh, To put it another way, you never escape the potential evils that come from organizing with other people. And if you try to live life all alone in solitude, you have just as many, if not more, evils that are possibilities. So I don't think of it, Bill, as we're going to have the right theology and the right people, and this is going to be utopia. (laughs) I think of it as everybody's always caught up in relationships with others and ideas and institutions and practices and ideologies. Which of those might be better than the alternatives? assuming none of them is perfect
1: doesn't religion though create a space where judgment and shame are inevitably going to show up and i don't
3: think it's inevitable but i do agree with you it's common
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it just, it just seems if we say religion is a better way to go, and again, I, 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 maybe you and I would even disagree, maybe you would agree with me that maybe religion isn't even a necessary part of the formula. That might take another couple hours to work out, But <laughs> but if we're going to espouse God and give people any sort of framing for that, aren't we just setting up a fertile space where unhealthy ideas and lines and boundaries can once again run rampant? it just seems again i love your view i wish all of christianity would come to where you are and uh and religion in general and yet i think if we carry that out unhealthy voices will once again influence that to just do harm in some other way
3: yeah well let's let's substitute your language for mine let's call what if we said we're all looking to cooperate with creative love energy don't you think that has the potential for negativity as well people organizing in ways that hurt one another i think it does <laughs> i mean the the ideology that killed the most people in the 20th century was atheistic it was in ussr i'm not saying that makes it automatically the worst but,
2: i would um, i would go back to what you did with the umbrella i would call i would call that just a religion <laughs> It was another Just a
3: religion. religion. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I
2: would call let's communism. I mean, how yeah. it was run, it was a religion. <laughs> yeah. Another this tribal. Idea was not, this was not, this was not a country where everybody could, you know, freely yeah. share ideas. And so sometimes okay, well, that argument gets a little bit too much legroom for me. <laughs>
3: okay. Well, let's let's maybe all let me see if I can scale back to this issue and see if we're on the same page here. Would you be yep. on the same page as me that Life can't be lived well if we try to be solitary individuals.
2: Yeah.
1: Say that one more time.
3: Life can't be lived well if our goal is to be solitary individuals. No, no. We
1: need to be in relationship with others. The human species, we're social creatures, and our survival has depended on cohesion and collaboration.
3: I figured you'd say that. So we're yeah. on the same boat there. So then the only question is, how are we going to do community well? Now, it seems to me that if a community has as its guiding light creative love energy, which I love a lot, but let's just for the moment pretend that that doesn't mean God. Um don't you think it's quite likely that that community will still have flaws? <laughs> we'll probably still have some shaming that goes on. You guys aren't doing creative love energy, right? <laughs> or whatever. Um, I, I Maybe this is too pessimistic of you for you guys, but I think any community is going to deal with those, those obstacles. Um, so the answer for me is to try to create the best overall love community. Um, and I'm most attracted to one that has some kind of agent that's loving. So
2: here's, here's, um, I'm going to push back on myself here. Okay. because Here's where Uh-oh. I'm at. If I'm, if I'm doubting my doubts, this is, this is where this is one of my major, uh, things that I doubt about my own kind of approach to how I'm raising my kids is there's, there's a really good argument and you, and you touched on it that I think you should expound on because I think it's a really good argument. Like it's a, it's an argument that pushes back on myself and I feel it. And it's the argument that if, if, if we're social creatures and we're inevitably going to have systems and religion, and again, I think you define religion like me, it's just how you're orienting yourself in the universe, like really broad. Right. Um, and we're going to do that inevitably, then we should try to make as good a system and as good a God and as good a myth as we can, right? Mm-hmm. And when we don't, and when we're kind of in this period of post-postmodern deconstruction, you know, we've we've tried to tear down all the systems because there was a lot of harm and all the things. Um, the fear of Nietzsche that I think is really insightful is that he was afraid that if we lose our belief in God, and if God is really dead, which he didn't say triumphantly, like this is so great. He was Mm -hmm. afraid that what would replace it would be worse. Mm -hmm. And that's a deep fear that I still hold is that if, if you remove God, if you remove the best myth, even, even Jesus is a little bit holds this space of just someone collectively Collectively that we can say this is a myth of a good loving person and we should all try to emulate that. If you lose that, the things that replace it like politics becoming a religion, which is what happened in the USSR and consumerism that comes into that space is far worse than what a good God system could do. No. And that's a really, really good argument. That if this is how we are, just as humans, maybe the best thing that we can do is collectively imagine the best God that we can possibly imagine, and work and work together with and towards that thing, even if you don't believe that it's true, <laughs> because the well, myth uh, yeah. itself, the myth itself, can do a lot more good than. You know, we, we see young people today, they leave church and then they become, I've told people on this podcast before that if I had to choose for my children to grow up in a religion, any religion or grow up and politics be their religion, I would choose religion because politics, you never have to meet your shadow self. You never even have the opportunity to, because the bad guy is always on the other side and it's empty and it's soul, you know, it's really soulless. And so there is a really good argument there, I think that you touched on, but I think is, is really strong that if this is just what we do as humans, we collectively get together and we have stories and myths and rituals that bring us together. Why not just do this the, best way that we can imagine and i just i think that that's a really good argument um the the i would the counter to that so i hold that and i have one more thing and then i want to see what you think so i hold that like that is a strong argument to me and then the other side of that argument is that the country that did the best as far as individual free rights let's just say you know maybe america isn't the greatest on the happiness scale or healthcare, but individual free rights you know we did pretty good as far as countries go. And the reason we did is because Thomas Jefferson, at the very least, he was a deist. I think if he were living today, he would have been an atheist. And he was really looking at the history and the sectarianism going on. And he just really thought, if we're going to do this, if we're going to build a society, we've got to take God out of this and build a separation between we've just got to take God out of the equation. And so there is an argument that, so I I hold those two, that maybe the best we can do is, is, is imagine a God worth worshiping, right? Um, A God of love and move in that direction. Or maybe the reason that we have, you know, whatever good that America has been in the world is because we took God out of it. And we tried to build, uh, values into a system without God, and so I hold those two ideas. I kind of hold in tension. So what I just threw a bunch at you, yeah. Kind of, what do you think about all that?
3: Two quick comments. Yeah. On the first one, I try to live as if that God of love exists, but to say I believe in God, that's just, I mean. Some people say believe and they mean I'm really certain. (laughs) For for me, I don't use believe in that way. I believe it. I'm, I'm living as if. There's good reasons to not believe in God. There's good reasons to be an atheist. I'm living as if there really is a God and that makes a difference. That's the first point.
2: Jordan, Peter, jo, Jordan Peterson does the same thing, which is I think why the Jordan oh. Peterson Sam Harris debates were so interesting because they were, they were almost right in this space where Jordan Peterson says I choose to, I choose to act as if God exists, and he cited kind of all the good that it does in his life and how it grounds all his theories. And Sam Harris was very, you know, I think we can get there without God, and that's what made really that debate kind of the the talk of our time um anyway so that was an interesting way that you phrased that i've heard that phrasing from him before
3: yeah uh my second thing is i think you give thomas jefferson too much credit (laughs) i mean if you look at the history of the u.s 90 plus percent of people believed in god along the way and even though we tried to separate church and state, <laughs> we really haven't done a very good job of that. <laughs> but um, but there is something about Jefferson that I like, and that is, I think, what you were pointing to, and that is there's something about freedom of conscience, conscience um, that he had. I think you could incorporate that into a religious view of reality, and I I try to do that in my own view. But um, that isn't always incorporated in religions, and he put his finger on that. That's been helpful in the U.S., I think.
2: Hmm, interesting, Bill. Do you have another question?
1: No, I'm I'm loving the dialogue back and forth, and I'm I'm just trying to. I don't know. I I, I again, I'm going to come back to the same spaces I've already kind of hashed out, which is okay. I, I um I, I do agree with you by the way that whenever you try to draw the, if any one person tries to draw the perfect line on how much do I love others and how much do I do self care or make my needs uh, prioritize over another human beings. And we're all trying to balance that and there because we live in a, a non-binary complex world uh, there really isn't any way to draw a perfect line. and And no. so, so, so my question, I guess would be maybe an outflow of that is, if we, if we were to get, again, I know that there's no way for you or I or anyone else to name the perfect system that we all should fall under, but it also seems like we can't have it be a free-for-all either. And, right. and in some ways, I think a liberal perspective of God might be the best we could do. It gives kind of a bare-bones framework, and we can work within it. But it would seem as though we don't want everyone figuring out their own morality and their own... Uh, what's good for them and what's good for those around them on their own either. Right. Would you, would you say that or, or are you really, or would you say you are a fan of letting everybody work out what God is inside of them without any coercion from the sacred text of the world or those who profess to know God's word?
3: Yeah. I think we always already do that. So there's um, yes. Some people, focus more on text or sages, um, but we're always already trying to make sense of God moment by moment, and we're always already trying to figure out what the right thing, the moral thing is moment by moment. Um, And we're always already influenced by a ton of different things. No one does it in isolation. How how can we get
1: away from... By having sacred texts, whether it's Christianities or the Bhagavad Gita or any any other, how do we create something on the front end that makes it crystal clear to everyone? And it, it, and also, I'll pause here and say, maybe it's not even healthy to take, for instance, children and open them up to how complex the world is. But yeah. at some point, right, when someone moves right. into adulthood and they can handle complex ideas, how do we put – what what do we put and how do we put it at the front end – so that all of us grow up sensing that these stories should not be intended to be taken a hundred percent literal and people should have, feel safe and have freedom to look at these ideas as maybe even examples of how to do it wrong.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I don't have a like really great answers, except to say we need to hold all sacred texts lightly as human attempts. I think, inspired by God, but to me, inspired doesn't mean coerced or directed or somehow controlled, but sacred texts are human attempts to try to make some sense out of divine, and those texts can get it be closer or further from the truth. So if we help people to hold those sacred texts lightly, hold their spiritual leaders uh, lightly, um, it's different from being rejecting all of it and just trying to do things totally on your own, which that doesn't work, or even worse, just assuming that the text came from God or the leader tells you exactly what God wants, then you're, I think you're really screwed. At least my experience has been that people who try that end up getting hurt deeply.
2: Hmm. I want to address this comment which is one that I put up here cuz it's one I'm sure you've gotten before. <laughs> there's there's an argument that choosing to believe something is is intellectually dishonest, right?
3: Mm-hmm. And I
2: want to I I want to so I want you to do a, address that that person's comment um which I'm sure you've gotten before and then also it, I I kind of have a follow-up comment or or question that um that goes something like this. If this, if this myth, like, let's, let's just play for, with the idea that this God is a myth and doesn't exist, but believing in it really creates a good life.
3: Mm.
2: The good life. Okay. Mm -hmm. Really strong relationships, meaning purpose, value, deep connection. Um, Let's even say that it does it the best. Like it's really good at creating the good life, Mm -hmm. but it, it wasn't ultimate reality or it wasn't capital T true. Would you want to know, or is the, is the fruit so good and the life so good that you almost wouldn't want to know because you would lose some mm. of the benefits. Mm. So would you want to know if it wasn't true? Yeah if that co- if if there was a cost associated to that knowledge
3: yeah it's a hard hard question to answer because it like forces me to reject an a priori assumption that i have actually all of those questions uh, i have an a priori assumption that i can't be certain about such things so um there would never come a time in which I could know for sure that the grand story was correct or incorrect. <laughs> like, There's no such scenario in which someone walks in and said, Oh, I've been fooling you all along. This is all a lie. Or else or someone else walks in is and there, says, Oh.
2: That's a good question. Is there any discovery in science that would do that? Like, If no. we could create consciousness, there's no. nothing in science that we could discover or do that would threaten you at all no, at this all point. you got to
3: do is hang out with scientists for very long to find out how much they disagree with one another <laughs> like that's true. Uh, the best we could get is a scientific consensus on something mm. um, anyway so um but i the question was something about pretending is not the same as believing can you rephrase that one again like is it being dishonest yeah. uh that?
2: the the listener's comment was choose to pretend, which is, I think, how he's interpreting what you said. I don't think that um, you said those words. And then just yeah. kind of the argument that it's that it's then intellectually dishonest to believe something that you really don't know is true or not and making yeah. that leap because there's some people that just really – have a hard time making that leap. And why is it that some people can't make that same leap? I, in fact, personally, there's been times, especially when I was losing my faith in God, that I tried to make that leap of, I'm just going to choose to believe and felt like I couldn't. And so why is it that some people can do that and some people can't? And, and what would you say to someone who says that it's intellectually dishonest to do so?
3: Yeah. Um, for me, because I don't believe anyone can be certain about these things, you know, I think Descartes' right that we can be certain that we're thinking beings. Uh, we probably have certainty over mathematics, but we don't have certainty in relationships. We don't have certainty about facts about the world. We definitely don't have certainty about ultimate reality like gods or whether there is one or not. Um, the best we can do is try to come up with good reasons but they're always going to be insufficient to give us absolute proof. So let me use an illustration of my own life. I have good reason to believe after 33 years that my wife loves me. Now, there have been times in the past 33 years in which she's done things that are not loving to me because she's not a perfect person. But I have good reasons to believe that overall she's trying to do that. Am I certain of it? No, I can't use certainty in that. Strict philosophical sense, but gathering together evidences, experiences, etc. I got some pretty good reasons to to believe that. When it comes to God, things are a little bit different because I don't think. Well, maybe I don't believe that I can look outside and see God walking the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I think God is omnipresent, so God's always been present to me. So there's like there's some differences. So this there's not going to be a perfect analogy. But what is perfect is I don't think I can be certain there is a God or not. Uh, the question for me is, what's the good reasons to think there is a God? And what are the good reasons to think there's not a God? And that for me is always in flux. So I don't think I'm being dishonest when I say, you know, that I don't know for sure that God exists, but I'm still living as if God does. Cause I don't, I'm not sure about much at all. <laughs>
2: I mean, it's, so you would put, so you would put, you would put it in the same umbrella as like, I'm choosing to not raise my children in Mormonism. I have some good reasons to think that that was the best choice, but like, I don't know. And I'm moving forward with that belief, really not knowing if that was the best choice, Right. but anyone has to, I mean, that's, that would be the most broad definition of faith, which is, I, I don't usually like to use that, that term because just it's so laden. Um, and it has such baggage, but essentially we do all have to do that because we have, as soon as you take a step out into the world, you're putting out your own, I'm moving forward in this direction and I don't know where it's going to go. And no matter what
3: you do, no matter what you
2: do, you do have to kind of pull yourself up from your bootstraps and make a move at some point.
3: Yep. Who you vote for. You don't know who you're voting for is the best candidate. Mm -hmm. Who you, what, what the next bite of food is going to be healthy or not. You don't know that for sure. You're making faith uh, moves moment by moment in your life. Some of them are faith that have are pretty plausible and you think you got good reasons. Other times you kind of feel like you're shooting in the dark, but it's faith up and down all the time.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I just don't usually use that. Like I'll find it's like the God word, like faith in God, especially yeah. with the people that I talk to and a lot of the people in this podcast, like it, because there's trauma associated with those terms, yeah. we, we end up getting to the same place, but we'll have to use different words because yeah. of that, <laughs> that, that trigger and that allergy. But yeah, yeah, I, I'm on board with that. So Bill, do you have an, I know Tom, you have to head out soon. So Bill, do you have any last comments? Oh, I think we lost his video here for a second. My my last thing, and then I'll let you say anything you want to finish up with, um, and then anyone who's interested in, in Tom and Tom's work, especially if you're one of these people who still has intuitions that there's a God or there's intuitions that there's love in the universe. I know that there's people who have that intuition, um, but you're trying to make sense of it, or you've had some tough experiences, or you've had a faith deconstruction. I really recommend Tom's books. Um, they mm, were a really... Birth even though we didn't end up in the exact same place, it was just a really beautiful way to kind of work out some of these um, you know, intuitions and thoughts and you're wrestling with all of this. And it's just a really great platform for doing that and a really safe platform for doing that. And I see a lot of people really be changed by that. So um, I think my last, let's see, can we talk about process theology just for a second? Yeah,
3: yeah. Process theology is the idea that uh, God and the world are in process. Um, it shares a lot in common with open and relational thought. In fact, I think of it as a subcategory underneath open and relational thought. But process thinkers have tended to draw more from philosophy and science, and they've tended to make starker claims about um the helpfulness of the wide swath of religious traditions not just christianity or even theistic ones um and they've also tended process theologians have tended to have a view of god's power that's pretty much the one i've been mentioning earlier that they're things god simply can't do so um uh, if open and relational theology is the broad umbrella and under it process theology is one option Process theology is probably more on the progressive or liberal end, even of open relational theology, which is also on the progressive end. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. Um, I there's a lot of you. You may or may not know this. Our listeners may or may not know this. There's a lot of Mormons who, either in Mormonism, like they're still practicing, or out or coming out of Mormonism, because it's just so aligned with with what they learned about God will end up in a place like transhumanism. Mm-hmm. And so how is, so transhumanism is kind of this idea. You can get pretty scientific with it, that whatever God is, we can become it. And really science is going to be the thing that is going to create things like immortality or, you know, end poverty on earth and that we can get there together. And that science is going to be really the thing that's driving that. Some people include God in that, some people don't, but how would that relate to kind of that transhumanism idea?
3: It would embrace those transhumanistic factors that talk about a real role that you and I play in making the world a better place in the future better. Mm. Yeah. It would embrace the aspects of transhumanism that um, suggest that things can actually get better. We're not just stuck in a cycle of, you know, the same old, same old, or we're not necessarily going to get worse. So it, it can share some of those basic uh, assumptions. Um the idea that we could literally become omnipresent, um, I'm, I'm very skeptical of that, or literally as an individual could be omniscient, know all things. I'm quite skeptical of that. But there are, um, if becoming divine in the transhumanist sense means that I can become loving like God is loving, open and relational folks would be on
2: board with that. Mm, that makes sense. All right. So I, I'm going to let you go so you can prepare for your, for your next appointment. Bill, do you have any last questions or thoughts?
1: No, I'm just deeply grateful. I come from a system where you're not allowed to really ask the hard questions
3: Uh, and uh, for
1: you to sit and allow us to kind of poke at the edges of this and, uh, and allow people to kind of see these conversations happen in real time. I just want to say I'm grateful. Um, and, and again, having seen, uh, other podcasts that you've been part of. Uh, I watched, I listened to two of them where you were with Brian McLaren. Uh, I, I saw one where you were talking about your book, uh, God can't, mm. and I just am deeply appreciative that you in this deep, peaceful, calm, uh, demeanor sit with questions where your ideas are being poked at. And, and I just want to yeah. say, thank you.
3: Uh, well, thank you for the opportunity to to wade into some really complex questions, yeah. the answers to yeah. which I definitely don't know for certain. But uh,
2: <laughs> what I what I love about this conversation, and then we'll let you go, is that on you know if you were to look on paper, you know, Bill and I have times where we we get on our atheist high horse and we'll come down on some kind of, you know, translation or some kind of truth claim and we can get pretty harsh, Bill and I, because <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot to, there's a lot to make fun of, or there's, yes. there's, there's some easy low hanging fruit that you yes. can go after. Right. And, and you know, we go after those sometimes. And then, you know, when you look at your curriculum, you know, being an elder in the church and NNU and you're, you know, your pastor work and you would, just seem like we would just be on opposite ends of the spectrum. But really what I what I want people to to sense from this is that even though there's maybe a hair there in between kind of an atheist mystic or someone who's kind of more of a, a you know, deconstructed Christian or open and relational theology or God is relational. Um, there are some differences there, and Tom and I will keep talking about them for the rest of our lives. But <laughs> it's much different than being in a nihilism versus fundamentalism. That's not That's mm-hmm. not where we are. That's not the game that we're playing. It's this space in between of how can we build a good life? How can we instill values in our children? How can we gather in, in communities that um, can experience Spirituality together, and how do we do that? And um, those are questions, those are really big questions. Some of those questions we really don't know what we're capable of as humans and how can, how we can redo this. Do we try to fix Christianity and make it, uh, make a God more worthy of worship? Do we scrap it and try to build spiritual secular society? Well, that hasn't really been done either. And you know, these are all, this is the mess. This is the mess yep. that we're in. <laughs> but I, I really feel with Tom that we're, we're kind of still in this mess together and we're trying yeah. to figure out this together. And it's not this, it's not this, you know, nihilism, atheism, high horse, and mm-hmm. fundamentalism debate which you do get that kind of in the broader rhetoric rhetoric and so this is yeah. why i really love conversations like these because um there's just there's just space in the middle to be able to to hold some of these ideas so i really appreciate mm-hmm. your time tom and we will let you go and uh, appreciate you for joining us today
3: it's been an honor and privilege thanks
2: all right thanks all right. tom all right bill that was my friend tom what do you think
1: I'll I'll tell you, um, he acknowledged uh, it, and it's this battle because I think we all do it, which is where we we hold beliefs. I hold beliefs that are just a little bit away from him, and I'm not going to easily give those up. And he holds beliefs that are uh, just on the other side of that line, and and he's not going to easily give it up. And you know, it it begs for us to talk about you know, rational thinking and how to be a rational thinker and what does it mean when evidence on various sides of an issue are presented? How do you get your own pre-existing belief out of the way so that you can hear what the other party is saying or what the other piece of information is without deeming it dangerous or wrong or bad on, on the front end and, and actually giving it uh, your ear and sitting with it and examining it? And I don't, you know, I'd like to be able to say like, I'm right and he's wrong. And if he would just listen to what I have to say, then he would understand his positions. Irrational, but I'm very well aware that it might be my position that falls into that too.
2: Yeah. Well, we, for Tom, I know there's some, there's some people I meet, religious people that I meet that it was like, if you have, if you consumed the podcast that I've consumed in the past decade, I don't think you would think that, but with Tom, it, it's different because no. he has, he has thought about, he has read those books. He has done that work. And it's, it's, it's actually a really strong argument. You know, you and I, we were, we're reading a book by Brian McLaren, who's very much in this space and and does things with Tom of, you know, it seems like we kind of do religion as humans let's make the best one that we can and it's it's not a bad argument it's it, it's a good argument especially if if on the other side all we have is politics and and uh, you know consumerism filling that hole that may not be better for people you know and that's, that's a good argument
1: if the entire world framed religion in god the way he did it would be it would be a safe planet to live on. Wouldn't it?
2: Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that if everybody was there, the world would be, the world would be a better place. And so it's like, well, then and I might go to world? church.
1: I think you might go to church. If that's, if, if his framing is like, that's, that's, that's as close as we get. I, I might go on Sunday. That might, I could yeah. probably live with that.
2: Yeah. I would still. So here, so my, my history with Tom is that, you know, I met, I, I coached his daughter's soccer. And one of his daughters is super philosophical and I was, you know, I talked to her at soccer practice and I'm just like, this kid is, is next level. She ended up going to Harvard, very smart kid. So I had to figure out like, who's this kid's parents? Like this kid is talking about philosophy with me. And, uh, so I, my master's program, I studied under him and I studied open and relational theology because it was the God that was most interesting to work with, like the God that was really not threatened by evolution, like the God that really was not threatened by bad verses in the Bible. Like that's a God that could stand up to some scrutiny. So I did my master's degree with him. And loved, I could have, converse, we had hours long conversations with whatever class I was studying under him. And it was super interesting. And the thing, and you'll have to tell me yours, Bill, is like why you can't move that hair over to the other side. And I think for me, the reason that I can't go to the other side is was my first argument in this podcast, which is that... It doesn't seem like there's any other life on the uni- in the universe, or at least, you know, from our corner of the universe, it seems quite empty. And then most species have died, and then most of human history is just abject suffering. I mean- You're just dying for the stupidest reasons. You're just, it's just a hard, suffering life. And for a time, there was only like a couple thousand humans, like we were on the verge of extinction. And so, if all of this, God trying to bring, trying to invite creatures into higher and higher levels of existence and relationality, to me, Even if that was God's plan, that plan seemed to have failed because for most of life, for most things, it's just suffering. Like, yeah, we get to be in a space where you and I, Bill, can experience a lot of love, but if you were to go back to our ancestry and what it took to get us here— was it worth it? Uh, that's Those are tougher questions. And so Tom pushes back with the idea that, okay, that's the problem of evil, but then what about the problem of good? And I think evolution does more to explain why humans can be good to each other than God explains why things seem to be so bad for most of human history. And that's why I could never jump over. You're muted.
1: You um- – so, a couple things. One is you're right. If somebody said, "Hey, Bill, uh, you can get into this machine and it's going to randomly drop you at any other time uh, in human history and randomly at some other place,"
2: yeah, absolutely not, a, not. That's
1: chance in hell. I'm taking that, that yeah, wager.
2: Absolutely not.
1: Because I'm I'm one of the lucky privileged people to live in a time and place where minus health and minus, uh, issues I couldn't control like mental illness, uh, and things like that. I am lucky to be in a place where my life is better than probably 99.9999% of the planet of human beings have ever been on this earth have lived. So there's that. Um, so you mentioned earlier that he's well-read. I, I, I'm very appreciative of that. So when when I was preparing for this conversation, I became aware through a couple of these podcast interviews he was on that he's familiar with Rob Bell and Richard Rohr and Eckhart Tolle and uh, you know all all the voices that you and I have some sort of level of trust that they're going to hold these kinds of conversations sacred and recognize the um, um, the merit of the view that you and I bring to the table. he's read all those folks so i don't say it lightly because he's done the hard work um but the reason i can't come to his side is and it's sort of what you said which is and i'm not as philosophical as you are as you're examining like the problem of evil and problem of good i've spent a little bit of time there but not really a lot where i've spent my time is listening to all sides and going what does my brain tell me is the most rational conclusion and And it's not even close for me that the scale of balance is so lopsided that for me, I can much more rationally. And and again, we all judge in our own minds what is rational, what isn't. My brain tells me the most rational explanation is the secular explanation for how we came to this moment. And like you, I recognize that over 200,000 years of human history and then Millions and billions of years before that of whatever we were, but something other than human that we have our brains and bodies, our perceptions have been rewarded by showing up in the world a certain way as a as a life form and that over millions and billions of years, we should expect that to show up as predispositions to want to socialize with other humans or predispositions to sense awe and wonder when we look up at the stars. And so I don't see any less than natural secular reason for why I should sense. Cause I do sense awe and I do sense wonder. I don't see any reason why I should attribute that to anything other than the universe creating itself over 13.7 billion years.
2: Yeah. So that, so my two big reasons why I couldn't, fully go where Tom was, even though I was studying under him and reading some of the best material. And there's some science in there that he, that he brings in. That's really interesting. And it was that first reason of like, there's just so much extinction and suffering and so much time to get us here where we could even talk about love that it just seems like a failed project. But then the second, the second argument for me is I could never get over the instinct or the intuition that I'm creating this, I'm doing this, right? And so when you look across human history, we have a God and then something is not working, whether it's like Martin Luther nailing the, the treatise on the door because he has some issues with Catholicism and then Protestantism is born or Lutheranism is born, Um whether it's that or, I mean, in every way, it's like we create gods and we bind together and then the go- those gods don't really work or something changes or we grow morally and then the God changes and then the God changes. And when you really look, I, I should have asked him this question, but when you really look across history, I don't have... Uh, any intellectual confidence, even though I've studied philosophy and religion, to be able to say, well, every human in history is just kind of making a better God, making a new God. Every community does this over time. But this time, we've got it. This time, we've deconstructed and we're creating the God and finally we got our myths right and this is this is it this is the god this is the god that co- you know coincides with science and our intuitions about the world and we've done it i just when you look at the odds of that just purely mathematically you cannot i mean that's a lottery like maybe he's done it maybe he's won the lottery and he's put it together a, a system that really brings in science and religion and systems and intuitions about god maybe you know, maybe he's done it. It was interesting enough for me to study for two years, but I could never just have the confidence to say out of all the human history, it seems like we're doing this. It seems like we're the ones that are creating this. And I just never, I just don't want to play that game. Like I was just tired of playing that game. And I just had this sense of, of maybe we're bad at this game and maybe we need to pull ourselves out and try a new question which the question which you and I tackle on this podcast is in light of not knowing about God in light that we're bad at this, how can we build a good life anyway? That just seems to me to be the better question and a better use of my time than trying to figure out the God that's worthy of our worship.
1: Yeah. You, you mentioned the game that's being played. I mean, we look at something like the Bhagavad Gita and we see there are stories of talking deer in there, for instance, and Um, you know, Thomas, I think certainly would agree that the parts of the Bible that speak to highly unlikely events taking place, probably not literally happening, but, but it's, how do you parse it out? How do you live in a world where you go, well, the talking donkey in the old Testament is real, but the talking deer in the Bhagavad Gita is not, or Jesus walking on water is real, but somebody, you know, yeah. moving a mountain in 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 this old uh, sacred myth is false or, you know.
2: Um, yeah, but Tom has a really interesting argument because that's a really easy place for atheists to win a point in a debate um, because what, and I've heard Christopher Hitchens argue this exactly, that when morality moves ahead and like takes a step forward, you know, it'll often be maybe written down in religion, but it's like the society is doing that. Like we decided to read the scriptures about the Bible differently now because our morality has moved. Right. And so we read those scriptures differently, but it's not the scriptures that are doing that. It's we're doing that. Like we, you know, but Tom's argument is interesting because he would call that movement of increasing morality. He would call that God. He would, yeah. he would call that God too. And so he would say that just the fact that we're moving forward in morality and that things get better – he brings God into that, which is, and it's more interesting than just the argument that God said this and this is all true. Well, an atheist can just blow that up in two seconds, but the idea that we grow together and we become more and more moral because we're a part of God and God is in relation with us. That's a stronger argument than the average one that you get.
1: So long as people recognize that by that standard, what direction is the world moving and where will it be in 10,000 years or a million years? So for instance, in a million years, if there is intelligent, intelligent, sentient life on planet earth, it will be something other than human, right? It won't be a human. It won't be a human being anymore because if we look back a million years, humans weren't then, and now evolution does its process. And here we are. And if we fast forward a million years, it's not human anymore. And, all the religions that are around today either will be dead or will have 27 followers, right? It will be uh, it will be a heaven's gate essentially where there's a very small number of people on the planet who participate in any sort of specific religious ideology that's currently existing on the planet. And so by his own standard then, What happens a million years from now, if that's God doing his process, he's ridding us of the very system that Thomas would like us to consider anyway.
2: Yeah, I think he'd be okay with that because he would just see these systems as means to an end. So the fact that they collapse and recreate and collapse and recreate is just always God pulling us into greater and greater rela- relationality and morality. So he would just yeah. move God into that. So anyway, super interesting, guys. Super interesting theology, especially if you're a person on this podcast who who has intuitions about God, um, but it's it's – you, you feel triggered, you feel trauma, you feel like, I, you know, I'm not sure how to make sense of it. His work is really interesting, especially his book, God Can't. Um, and yeah, it's just really, it's much more fun to engage in this kind of debate where it's not as easy to just throw away your old Testament God that is just obviously so riddled with problems that it's just not even fun. It's not even fun anymore at that point. It's just too easy, <laughs> but this conversation is harder because it, You know, there's, there's some, there's a stronger God idea there that has more science in it than, than your old Testament God.
1: Yeah. And, and another part of this game is that if we're going to say like, Hey, I figured it out in 2022, these are the things we discard. And these are the things we hang on to, as you're pointing out 50 years from now, that line will be somewhere else. And, and as you pointed out, how can we be so arrogant to know that we got any of it right in this moment, like all of it's maybe.
2: Yeah. So I think, I think the, the big difference if I were to kind of like put an overall statement to this conversation is that it seems to be that we're so interconnected and this brings in a lot of the quotes that you do on this podcast with Eckhart Tolle, Mm. that it seems like we're so interconnected that we're kind of a collective consciousness. Like Like we are the bees in the beehive that, you know, we talk about bees as if it's a collect, like the collective is a kind of animal, right? The collective is much more than just one bee alone. And the collective is a kind of thing, right? And we as humans on this planet are interacting with everything else are kind of like that. We're a hive. And we, because of that, we can move, We can make moves as as a collective consciousness. Now, some people will call that God uh, and include some kind of transcendent reality that allows that to happen, and some people don't. And so it's like we we were both on board with this kind of collective hive thing and, and transcendent reality, and we're moving towards something and all of that. But it's whether or not that's part of God or part or there's a creator aspect to that or there's a transcendent reality aspect to that, or whether we are literally just a beehive um trying to figure out life and we make moves together as we really hear each other's stories and communicate is how we do that. And so you and I are more on the fence of I think this is us, I think, I think we are the collective consciousness, and I think that uh you can do this without a god and you can get all the good things without a god and for tom he kind of grounds that into a a a transcendent reality that's helping to move that process along
1: yeah beautiful i love it
2: so interesting guy um, and then you're out of town next week. So next week, I'm going to do a solo dive. I'm going to do some Greek mythology and I'm going to do some story time, but we will miss you next week. And then, uh, we got two more episodes talking about Brian McLaren's book, which we got a ton of positive feedback for. Um, and so we'll keep doing those because those are just so, so great when we get Janice Wrangler and Anthony Miller. And, uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, again, these are rare conversations on the internet where, Um, it's not the, it's not the typical binary, like, is there a God and it, because the Bible says so and really dumb, lame arguments and, and atheists just kind of on their high horse, but not, not thinking about some of the, the, like the problem of the good. We haven't talked about that on that on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So hit the like button, follow us. If you enjoyed the conversation, if you enjoy that, there's a platform that's having these conversations, which are just much more rare than your usual binary conversation, you know, please support Mm -hmm. us um, so that we can continue to be part of, of this conversation and not just allow the really loud voices on the polls to be the only ones communicating about these things. So please support us so that we can continue to do this and we will see you next time.
1: All right, folks, uh, have a great day. This has been another Almost
0: Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit no spirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.